right. So we can praise God. We can always trust in our Lord, our sovereign God. Wonderful truths. And look forward to his return. Uh, would he return now even while we're worshiping the Lord? Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah is written in a time that, in a sense, was not unlike even our days, days where there is war, there's threats of war, politics is reigns, and people look to rulers, to powers for deliverance. And this is a fitting passage, even in the providence of God, for us to look at this morning, for it reminds us of God's sovereignty. Let's pray one more time before we look to God's word. Father, we thank you that your word reveals us to us who you are. In a world that has fallen, in a world that is corrupted by sin, Lord, we cannot help but look to something greater, something pure, someone pure, someone holy, someone just. We do not find it in our world, Lord. But, Father, when we open your word, we find it in you. Father, we pray that as we look to your word this morning, may we grow in our our vision of you. Grow us in our appreciation of who you are, our God. And that we would live in light of that. That our faith would be increased. That we would trust you in every circumstances of life. Even those circumstances that are greater than ourselves. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned before that in the book of Isaiah that in that Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament far more than any other Old Testament prophet. I believe the Psalms are quoted more in the New Testament, but you know they don't count that as one particular prophet. But Isaiah, as the prophet, individual prophet, he is quoted more in the New Testament than any other prophet of all. He's mentioned twenty-two na- times by name uh, in the New Testament. He's quoted directly over sixty-five times. And there are countless other times where he, his words are alluded to. The New Testament authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saw how Isaiah spoke, essentially, of the Messiah. No other book in the Old Testament contains as many promises about the birth, the life, and death of Christ than this book of Isaiah. And today, we arrive at a section of Isaiah that is especially rich with Messianic prophecies. 7 through 11 uh, is very rich with Messianic prophecies. Uh, Many times we'll hear uh, verses taken from these chapters around Christmas time, particularly. Today's chapter contains perhaps the most familiar of all these Messianic prophecies. And that is the prophecy of the virgin birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in Isaiah 7.14 which says, Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, the Bible records not only this prediction of Jesus' virgin birth, but the Bible also records its fulfillment, as many of you already know, some 700 years later by the Apostle Matthew in Matthew 1, 22 and 23. Now, while the prophecy of Jesus' virgin birth... uh, is at the heart of Isaiah 7. In fact, you cannot help but read Isaiah 7 without seeing Jesus in this text. It would be inaccurate to say that the main point of Isaiah 7 is his virgin birth. And so today, I'm not going to preach a message on the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, I preached that message before, I believe at some Christmas time years past. But this text, when we look at this prophecy, particularly in Isaiah chapter 7, 
Isaiah's prophecy here is about the sovereignty of God. It's about how God is sovereign over the world. He is sovereign over the affairs of man. Though there are powers at, at, in effect in the world, powers that are greater than Judah and, and the king, that God, who is the God of Israel, the God of Judah, the God of uh, his people, is greater than all the circumstances that they face. And it is his desire that his people would learn to trust in him, trust in him in times of trouble greater than ourselves. Just as a bit of review, last week we looked at Isaiah chapter 6. We remember there the calling of Isaiah, the prophet, after having received the vision of God in his throne room, and he answered God's call. Here in chapter 7 then is Isaiah's, in a sense, his first message. Uh, his first message that, he, that is recorded uh, after that calling passage to bring a message to one of his Judah's kings, to King Ahaz. And we'll learn a little bit about him. As an outline for us this morning, then we're going to look today at this passage. It's 25 verses, so it's pretty long. But I'm going to try to finish it all in one message because I think it belongs as one message. And that is three divine words from this prophecy of the virgin birth of Christ that encourage us, his people, to trust in God's sovereignty in the face of trouble greater than ourselves. And I trust that maybe you are in a place right now, uh, you perhaps find yourself uh, personally or just reflecting upon the world that we live in, that there is often trouble that is greater than ourselves. Trouble that is beyond our own abilities, our own wisdom, our own knowledge, our own strength, our own resources. Trouble that is too great. Trouble that we don't know what to do with. And when you find yourself in those places, it's what God intends for you and me is that we would learn to trust him more. That we learn to trust in him. For the option, the alternative is to not trust in him. And that is a far worse choice. So let's look to the word of God this morning then. Let's look at verses 1 through 9 for point number 1. The first divine word we find here is in verse 1 and 9. The divine invitation to trust in God. Here in verse 1 and 9, I'm just going to read the text uh, and then we'll explain a little bit. Verse 1 through 9. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim. His heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shear Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And say to him, Take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin, Rezin and Aram, the son of Remaliah. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now, with another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered, so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. 
oftentimes when we hear about Isaiah 7:14, which we find in this chapter, we immediately think of Christ's virgin birth. And we think of, just kind of jump there, we think about how Jesus, when he was born, he was born of the Virgin Mary, and all, those, and all the wonderful things about that fulfillment of prophecy. But we tend to forget that it was given, this, the prophecy of Isaiah's, of this Jesus' virgin birth, is given in a very specific situation, in a very historical context. It was given in a time when the nation Judah, the southern kingdom Judah, and her king, King Ahaz, were facing trouble. And understanding this situation then gives us greater encouragement to trust in God. Verse 1 gives us this review then of the historical situation. It was in the days of King Ahaz who reigned from 735 to 720 BC. And it tells us that the king of Ju- that he was the king of Judah at that time. And Pekah, who was the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, along with Rezin, the king of Aram, which is our modern-day kind of Syria, they joined together, Pekah and Rezin, they joined together in an alliance. We call this an Aramean-Israel alliance. And they waged war against Jerusalem. In fact, they tried to, they tried to conquer Jerusalem, but according to verse 1, they, they could not conquer it. Now Ahaz, a little bit mild Ahaz, Ahaz was... Uh, among the of the southern kingdom uh, kings, Ahaz was one of the few that was an evil king. Most of the kings were good kings. The majority of them were. But every once in a while in the southern kingdom, there would be an evil one. And he was one of them. Second Chronicles 28, verses 1 through 4, describe how he basically did not do right in the sight of the Lord. He had made images of Baal, the, uh, uh, one of the idols. He sacrificed to many false gods. And he even burned his sons in fire as worship. So he was not a, he was not by far not a believer in God, though he ought to have been because he was the king, son of, a son of David, uh, one who sat on the throne of David. In verse two, when Ahaz and, and the people of Judah heard that the Arameans were camped in Israel, in the northern kingdom, and here it's, you know, sometimes they'll say Ephraim, and just as a reminder, Ephraim was the largest tribe in the, in the northern kingdom. So sometimes Israel, the northern kingdom, is called Ephraim. And it says that, and so after Aram and the alliance had failed to conquer them one time, Aram was once again basically camped in Israel, waiting to attack again. And so as a result of this, the news of this, uh, they had their spies out there and they heard that was happening. It says in verse 2 that their hearts shook, the Ahaz and the people, they were afraid. In their minds, this Israel and Aram alliance was an undefeatable foe. They could not defeat them in battle. And the, their fear was that the throne, the kingdom would be lost. They would lose their lives. They would lose their livelihood. They would become slaves. And yet even, it's kind of interesting, even here, Ahaz is referred to as the house of David. It's a reminder even to Ahaz that he is a descendant of David. And because of the Davidic covenant, if you think about the, the Davidic covenant, God made promises to David and his descendants, his seed. He was promised them that they would, as one of his descendants, would sit on the throne forever. That's a great encouragement for those who was a son of David, who was part of the throne of David. But yet, King Ahaz was not a believer. He did not believe in God, did not believe God's words. And he had not remembered this. And so God sent Isaiah to him in verse 3. We find in verse 3 that God's message uh, is recorded particularly in verse 4 to 9. It begins with brief commands in verse 4. He just simply says, Take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted. Isaiah calls Ahaz to trust in God. 
in essence. He calls him to trust in God in the face of a trial that is greater than himself. Why? God tells him. Because the trial that is greater than himself to God is not greater. He says, because pika and resin are simply two stubs of smoldering firebrands before God. That their anger, though may be fierce, though they may threaten, uh, be a great threat to, to attack uh, Judah, they were essentially pieces of wood that had already been burned and would soon die out. Moreover, God's knowledge was greater than them. For God in his sovereignty knew their plans. He knew their plans to try to replace Ahaz. They tried to, this is, this is beautiful, um, well not beautiful, but it's, it's intriguing politics that are taking place here. They wanted to come in to Jerusalem, take out Ahaz, and put a puppet king in their place. And if you, you kind of just think about the historical background here, there's a reason for all of this because the greatest uh, empire this time is neither Aram nor is it Israel, but it's the Assyrian Empire. And so these nations, these two nations wanted to add the southern kingdom in a further alliance against, to protect against Assyria. And so they wanted to put a puppet king, the son of Tabeel there in verse 5 to 6. But notice what God says of their plans in verse 7. It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. God gives the reason for why their plans would fail. Why these plans that Israel Aram alliance would want it, would have devised would not succeed. In verse 8 to 9, Aram and Israel's plans would fail because at the head of each nation was simply a, a mere human being. That though you think of Aram as this mighty nation or a stronger nation than Judah, at its heart head, its leadership is its capital, Damascus. In those days, the capital cities really represented the strength of an empire, of a nation. And Damascus was the, was the key capital of, of Aram. And, but at the head of each city was simply a man. Same goes for the northern kingdom, for Israel as well. At its, at its capital, there was also a man. What is man? The implication is this, that what is man compared to the eternal sovereign God? If the Almighty says that their plans will not stand, then there's nothing that finite man can do to change it. God further promised, in fact, just in the parenthetical sort of promise here, that within 65 years, Israel would be completely shattered as a nation. And that would be, take place uh, later when, when the northern kingdom would completely be taken away into captivity. Historically, Assyria conquered Israel and took them into captivity. That's what would take place. What's more, the Assyrian kings then imported other nations into the, into the north, into northern kingdom. And in those lands, those people that were imported there eventually intermarried with whoever was remaining in the northern kingdom and thus producing the people known as the Samaritans. In, in effect, ending the existence of the northern kingdom. There would be no northern kingdom after that. God's exhortation here to Ahaz is given at the end of verse 9. He says in, in kind of with a, a, a warning type of exhortation, if you will not believe, you surely shall not last. After giving him all these promises, affirming him, telling him that, you know, you don't have to be afraid. I'm your God. So reminding him that he's his God. Reminding him that, that God knows what their plans are. God says they will not stand. They will not, they will not succeed. God tells him that, that the, behind these nations that you fear are simply men. So believe and trust in me, God says to Ahaz. But if you do not believe, 
the warning is that you will not last, that you will perish. The choice is Ahaz's. The choice is Judah's. God has already given his word here in his prophecy. And the situation called for Ahaz to trust in God. To trust or not trust. To believe or not believe in God. There are times in our lives where situations arise when we find ourselves facing trials greater than ourselves, right? And those times we feel helpless, we don't know what to do. But those are times when especially God wants us to trust in him. And he would assure us from his word that he is in control, that he is a sovereign God, that all that what we fear is in the hands of God. He tells us in his word, passes like Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In our own understanding, our own knowledge, we can't figure everything out. Some of us are pretty gifted people. Some of us are pretty capable of figuring things out, making a way for ourselves. But there are going to be times in our lives where we face situations and trials that are greater than ourselves. But God wants us not just in those times, but at all times to trust in him. Of course, that God tells us this, tells us that it's not in our nature to trust God, is it? That we don't generally trust God. We don't, we generally, will, by our own, in our sinful fallen nature, we, we trust in the things we see. We trust in our understanding, our strength, our riches. We trust in our connections in this world. And we trust in our family and friends. We trust in all sorts of things that we see in this world. But it's oftentimes hard to trust God. It's not easy to walk by faith and not by sight. It wasn't easy for Ahaz either. And God knows this, which is why he gives his second word. And the second divine word for, uh, for Ahaz as well as for us today is the divine sign of hope from God. That there is always hope where there is God. Isaiah, we find this in verses 10 through 16. And I will read these verses as we go along. Then chapter, verse 10 and 11, we read this. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. So in verses 10 through 11 here, God commands, essentially. This is the command. It's not even like, hey, if you want, this is a command. God commands Ahaz to ask for a sign of confirmation. A sign that what God has promised will take place, will be fulfilled. God knew Ahaz's heart. He knew that his heart was full of unbelief. So God offered to perform any sign that Ahaz would require. And Ahaz's response, which we find in verse 12, essentially reflects his unbelief. It sounds like humility at first, but really it's a hypocritical piety. Ahaz rejects God's offer in verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. That sounds really good. Ahaz is making reference to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, where testing the Lord is forbidden. Jesus in the wilderness would quote this very verse when tempted by Satan, if you recall. However, Ahaz misinterprets this verse. He misapplies it here. It's not, for it is not testing God when God commands you to do so. He says, ask for me a sign. So ask if God calls you. 
the biblical record shows that Ahaz does not trust the Lord. You kind of, in these verses alone, you, you really don't see it, but it's implied here in his response. But it, thankfully, we have the rest of the historical record, of the biblical historical record. And Ahaz's reign is recorded for us in the Chronicles and Kings. In fact, Second Chronicles 28 and Second Kings 16. You want to, if you had time, so later on today, go and look at those chapters. In Second Kings 16, 7 through 9, we read of Ahaz's response to the threat of this Aram-Israel alliance. In verse 7, we read this. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, uh, the king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and deliver me. That was the response to God's prophetic word. Instead of turning to trust in God, Ahaz turns to the king of Assyria, to the one nation that is the mightiest nation of all at that time. Instead of, he turns to protect him against the Aram-Israel alliance. And he, and so the words that come out of his lips are surprised. He says, well, I am whose servant? The king of Assyria's servant? I am whose son? The king of Assyria's son? This is the son of David. This is the servant of the Lord. He is the king who sits on the throne. But he has forgotten completely that he would bow down before the king of Assyria shows his, that he is full of unbelief. Furthermore, in verse 8 of, of that of 2 Corinthians 16, Ahaz even goes beyond and offers a, whole, a portion of the temple treasury uh, to the king of Assyria in order for the king of Assyria to come and aid him. Well, Isaiah's response to King Ahaz is at verse 13. God speaks through Isaiah in verse 13. Then he said, that is Isaiah, listen now, O house of David. You notice he never even called him Ahaz. This is a constant rebuke here of him by calling him, you're a house of David. You're the son of David. Here, why are you responding in this unbelief? Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? So Isaiah essentially rebukes Ahaz for trying the patience of God. And notice, furthermore, it's not only the house of David, but he, does, he says, he adds an additional thing. He says that you would test, try the patience of my God as well. He doesn't even say your God anymore. This is my God. Earlier he said your God at least. Now he says my God. The implication is that since you refuse to obey the Lord, you are treating him as if he's not your God. And in the same way, Every time that you and I do not trust our Lord, you and I are treating him as if he is not our God. Because when we call someone our God, we call him a Lord. It means, implies that we trust in him, right? That should be our, we believe in him. We believe in his son who died on the cross for our sins. If he is your God, then you will trust and obey. But that's not what Ahaz did. Ahaz did not trust him. He turned his trust to man once again, to Assyria, to deliver him. Nevertheless, although Ahaz is unfaithful, we find again that God is faithful. That his faithfulness is continually poured out upon the southern kingdom. He would not forsake the house of David. God would decide then the sign for him. Though Ahaz doesn't ask for the sign, God himself will give Ahaz and the Judah and Israel, and all of you, us, a sign. 
And so we arrive at our familiar verse, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. First of all, let's note what the sign is. The sign is that there will be a virgin, a young woman who is a virgin. She will give birth to a son. And the child would be named Emmanuel, which means God with us. That is the sign. That's, that's the sign here in verse 14. And though this familiar sign is, is very familiar to many of us who are Christians and kind of, you've got, you know, been a Christian for many, several years, it's actually a very challenging passage to interpret because it's prophecy. Verses 15 to 16 describe the significance of this boy that would be born as a sign. It says, verse 15, he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So verse 15 then tells us that this, this child who is born of a virgin will, be, will live in a time of calamity. Uh, the, the curds and honey indicated scarcity of food. So that only these basic foods that are produced, simply the, the produce of, of animals, livestock that they would have. You can, there wouldn't be no agriculture. There wouldn't be any implanting, farming. Verse 16 tells us that before this child is three, so in three years from now, in three years from the giving of the prophecy, both Israel and Aram, the, the kings of those lands, will be destroyed along with their nations. So we see here that this sign has a significance to the immediate historical context it tells them that you know in two or three years when this when this child will begin to know good and evil they kind of be able to choose a display a will in choosing good or evil that's by then the king this israel aram alliance that you fear will be gone will be forsaken but we also know especially in like new testament matthew 122 and 23 that this verse is fulfilled in jesus christ so this verse then is a what's a very clear example of a prophecy that has both a near and far reference. This is called a double pref- double reference prophecy. A double reference prophecy. It's sometimes called a double fulfillment prophecy. And we find this in, in many places uh, throughout the Old Testament. It's quite quite common uh, when it comes to some of Jesus' uh, prophecies. In this print prophecy, then, in the near future, there will be a young virgin that is somehow known to and must she must be known to Ahaz somehow because he has to. He's going to, the, the real significance is that she's going to have a child who's going to be called Emmanuel. But she's going to probably marry. So this is not like a virgin birth in the sense of Jesus, but she's a virgin. She would marry. This along with her husband would conceive a child. And when the son is born, she would name him Emmanuel. So someone in, probably in the royal court, in Ahaz's, Ahaz's day, would eventually would marry and have a child. This child would be assigned then. That before the child turned three, God would bring about the end of the overwhelming Aram-Israel alliance. And historically, within three years, in fact, within two years even, uh, we find this was fulfilled. Now, we have no reference, of course, to who the virgin was or who the child, because that's not important. It's really a type, really. It's a type of something that is more important, the the virgin birth, the the future fulfillment. But in this kind of context, the fact that within two, three years, Assyria conquered both Israel, according to 2 Kings 15, 29, and conquered Aram as well, 2 Kings 16, verse 9. And in the, in, in the conquest in those days, both kings were killed. One, by, uh, one was murdered by his own people, and, and the other was killed by the king of Aram. And as a result, for that time, for the time being, Judah was then delivered by God 
through Assyria from the overwhelming threat of the Aram-Israel alliance. So God fulfilled for that this, this prophecy in the near future. But this prophecy, significance has, as we, we, we all understand, has an ultimate, farther future fulfillment. When a young virgin named Mary would miraculously conceive a child by the Holy Spirit, a child who would be born, and though she was betrothed to Joseph, the scriptures tell us that she remained a virgin until his birth. The virgin birth of Jesus would be a sign that God would deliver his people from the overwhelming power of sin. And so in both near and far, the sign of this child, born of a virgin, provides hope for God's people. It's hope of God's complete sovereignty over the world. It's, God, it's hope of God's ability to provide deliverance for his people because he sends this child to be born of a virgin. And ultimately, we can say the ultimate fulfillment of this is in Christ, his son. And what's so encouraging about this prophecy is that it's not just for Ahaz's day, isn't it? It's for the people in the future. It's for the people of Israel. But it's for every people of all time because Jesus was for all of us. It's a sign for all of us who find ourselves facing the overwhelming power of sin. It's for those of us who find it hard to trust in God for salvation. God has given you the sign of the virgin birth of Christ. You just think about it. If you, you find yourself dif- finding it difficult to believe in Christ, just think about this prophecy. A prophecy that was given in 734 B.C., right? 734. Hmm. That's, and when did Jesus come? Well, we'll just say 0 A.D. 734 years later, before that time, this prophecy was given, and Jesus fulfilled it to a T. That is, what do you do with that? Think about that. This is prophetic. You study, go study Isaiah, you'll find that it is written way before the Gospels, way before Jesus. It's historical, it is a historical document. There are translations of it before Jesus' day. You can't get away from the fact that Isaiah's prophecies, and not just this one, but all of the prophecies about Jesus, are fulfilled at his birth. Many, or many, I'll say, there are some fulfilled at his second coming. That is a sign for you. It's a sign for anyone who stands in unbelief and says, I can't believe in Jesus. I don't even know if he exists. Well, look at the Bible. The Isaiah just prophesied that he would be born of a virgin, and he was, according to Matthew. And Matthew's a historical record, too. Just as, more sure than any historical document we have. It's a sign for you that God is sovereign. He keeps his word. He makes promises. And when he makes promises with regards to salvation he, and to those who believe in, his, in him, then God is able to keep and fulfill it. He will bring you to saving the knowledge of him. He will bring you to eternal life. You can trust God for salvation because he is able to provide it. And the problem is not in the veracity of the sign. It's not, well, can I really believe that sign or not? But rather... The problem is in the heart of the one who reads the sign. It's in our hearts, your hearts and mine. You know, when we drive down the highways, we see those yellow signs. Especially that reads, dangerous curve ahead, you know, 25, right? Now, all of us can look at it, but we have a decision to make. We say, well, I can observe the sign. I can believe that sign. I can slow down. Or I can not believe the sign and just keep going. My ex speaking Hamlet, probably. You know, if it is. 
That's what we often think. Oh, my car can hit. But whatever response you choose, it will not change the truth of the sign, does it? There's still a curve ahead. It still, you know, suggests you take it at 25, drive at that speed. The curve remains dangerous regardless of whether you acknowledge the fact or not. The problem is whether you believe the sign or not. Will you respond to the sign? Will you respond to the sign of the virgin birth of Christ? Furthermore, though, and as application, the divine sign of Jesus' birth is also encouragement for those of us who face trials greater than ourselves. For in Christ's birth, we are reminded that he is sovereign. He is in control of every aspect of our lives. And you don't really feel that until you find yourself helpless, do you? And we, we all come here. If you're not going through trials right now. You're like, mm, yeah, I believe that. But it's when God puts us in those places, puts you in those places, where you really do feel you're in a situation that's greater than yourself. It's when you find this truth to be true. You find that God is sovereign. You find you, you, you're, you're, the faith that God gives you responds. You know and you believe, you start believing in his promise. You believe in who he is. You believe that God, for those of you, who, those who love Christ, God works all things together for good. For those of us who are, find ourselves weak, God will give us grace sufficient for the task. And we can be encouraged to have this faith in Christ or faith in God because this sign of Christ. Let us not be like Ahaz who turned from God to trust in man. So as a result of Ahaz's unbelief then in God, the final word warns us of the danger of unbelief. Because we have a choice. We either believe God or don't believe God. We either trust God or we don't trust God in his sovereignty. And when we don't, as Ahaz does, there is divine judgment for unbelief in God. That's the third word we find. And I'll read verse 11, verse 17 through 25. The Lord will bring on you, on your people, and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle to the fly that is in the remotest part of the rivers of Egypt, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. They will all come and settle on the steep ravines, on the ledges of the cliff, on all the thorn bushes and on all the watering places. In that day, the Lord will shave with the razor hired from regions beyond the Euphrates, that is, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and it will also remove the beard. Now in that day, a man may keep alive a heifer and a pair of sheep. Because of the abundance of the milk produced, he will eat curds, for everyone that is left with the land will eat curds and honey. And it will come about in that day that every place where there used to be a thousand vines valued at a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. People will come there with bows and arrows because all of the land will be briars and thorns. As for all the hills which used to be cultivated with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns. But they will become a place for pasturing oxen and for sheep to trample Although God would show his sovereignty by delivering Judah from this Aram-Israel alliance, because of Ahaz and Judah's unbelief, God was going to bring, about, bring a judgment upon them. Notice, if you, you notice throughout this repetition of the phrase, <clears throat> in that day. And we'd seen in, in previous chapters that in that day, that phrase is an eschatological phrase. That oftentimes it refers to the, one, the future day of the coming of the Lord. But there are a few times in this case that in that day refers to the 
the judgment that is at hand, the historical context, an immediate judgment. But even as we see this immediate judgment, there is just imagery here that is, if you know, if if you dare to go that far, that is foreshadowing even the future day of the Lord judgment. Ironically, for Judah and for Ahaz, God would bring judgment through the very one that they, as a as a king and a people, had sought help from, the very king of Assyria. So they sought help from the king of Assyria. They didn't trust God. And so God says, I'm going to bring judgment. Yeah, I'm going to deliver you through them, but I'm also going to bring judgment upon you through them. It would be, according to, uh, according to verse seven, uh, 17, it would be a time worse than when the northern and southern kingdom had divided and separated. And that, would, that took place many years before. It tells us furthermore that foreign nations would be all, would be all over the land. Their, their armies would be over the land, the bees and uh, uh, the insects that were, t- that were spoken of in verse 18 and 19. The nation would furthermore experience extreme humiliation at the hands of the Assyrians. Verse 20. All agriculture and farming would cease, leaving people to subsist on the produce of the few animals that, they, that each one was able to keep alive. In verses 21 to 22. Instead, instead of a land with vineyards, there would only be briars and thorns. Briars and thorns. In my backyard, there are briars and thorns. It's land that's not very useful. It's land that I don't walk on. It's land that I, it's useless to me. I don't go there. Why? Because I don't want to get pricked by the briars and thorns. What's more, I don't want to go there because I don't know what's living in those briars and thorns. <laughs> briars and thorns. Briars and thorns. This is what the land is. It's going to be a desolated land, essentially. At the verse read, it is easy to, you know, when we look at this, this prophecy here, it's, it's just clearly a prophecy of judgment and desolation, destruction upon Judah. And it will be because of the king of Assyria. When we actually, when we first read this prophecy of judgment, especially after the end of chapter 6, we, we kind of confu- we, we can easily confuse it with the prophecy of the future destruction or, uh, of Judah by the Babylonian Empire. This is not that. That's chapter 6. This is a whole different judgment. This is a more immediate judgment that's going to ha- take place for Israel. Chapter 7 refers to the judgment at the hands of Assyria. And historically, the judgment was fulfilled in the days of Hezekiah. In fact, Isaiah records it for us in Isaiah 36 through 37, and we'll get there one day. It's also recorded for us in 2 Kings 18 to 19. And in those two passages, you, if you can read them together, it describes for us very well the threat of Assyria upon Hezekiah. And we all know, you know the story, there was great deliverance of Israel, of Judah, because of Hezekiah's turning to trusting God. But if you read the details, you kind of just read that, essentially, it was a time when the king of Assyria, his name was Sennacherib, had invaded the land. And he had, in effect, taken over all of Judah, all the other fortified cities. In fact, there's a historical record, uh, an archaeological record from Sennacherib that talks about he'd taken over like 60-some cities of, of Judah. So he destroyed. The whole land was desolated after the Assyrian, inva- the Assyrian invasion. The only city that was left was Jerusalem, where Hezekiah was living. Where Hezekiah sat as king. In fact, Hezekiah saw the error of his ways, or saw that his rebellion was basically, he was, he's going to lose. And so he surrendered. He, in effect, surrendered to the king of Assyria. And he even offered all the temple treasures to, to Sennacherib. But Sennacherib said, and Sennacherib took it and said, but that's not enough. I want you to completely open your gates and let me come in and, uh, you know, take over your, take over, take the rest of the stuff. 
And, Hezekiah, and that is what would have happened to Hezekiah as, if God had not intervened. But God, nevertheless, God used Assyria during that time to judge Israel, to show them the foolishness of trusting in nations. The very nation that once you called a savior, Assyria, is now your enemy, your destroyer. And there's a, there's a very strong application of this uh, as for us even. Many times the things that you trust in to deliver you will eventually disappoint you unless it is the Lord. We can trust in a lot of things. I remember when I was young, I trusted in my intelligence. Disappointed me. I trusted in my friends. There were times they would disappoint me. You trust in your own abilities. Disappointment. There's only one in whom we trust, who will never disappoint. Everything else will one day fail you. That's an important lesson for all of us. Whenever you do not trust, whenever we do not trust in God, we put our trust in something or someone else. And no matter what or who it is, you will find eventual disappointment, as Judah did with Assyria. And that's the lesson that King Ahaz and the people of Judah would learn. So it's simply in conclusion then. We are reminded that God wants you to trust in him. To trust in him and his sovereignty. That God is in control. This is our God. You call it, we call ourselves the people of God. We are the followers of Christ, the son of God. God wants us to trust in him. Yes, first and foremost, for salvation. From the most from the most, the greatest trial, the greatest over, the greatest overwhelming challenge that we face, and that is our sin. And the salvation from judgment from sin, we need to trust God for, through faith in Christ. But it's also, we are to trust in Him for everything that we face in life. For the trials, great and small. For the trials that you face on a day-to-day basis. And those trials on occasions in your life that are just simply greater than yourself. Where you feel just at a loss. Your choice is yours though. And your choice is mine. Will we trust in the Lord or will we not trust in him? Will we believe in God or will we not believe in God? For God has, in his desire to encourage you and I in our faith, the Lord himself has given us a sign. He's given us the virgin birth of his son. And everywhere we see, when we see his son, we remember his birth, especially as we enter into the holiday season, the Christmas season. It is a constant reminder to us to trust in our sovereign God. We can trust in him. No matter what impending challenges that are before you, we can trust in him. We can trust in him. He will not fail. Let's be people of faith who respond rightly to God's sign, to trust in his son, in his sovereign, God's sovereignty. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the encouragement from this chapter that you are a God who is sovereign. Lord, even when Ahaz and Judah faced an insurmountable foe, that, Lord, you called them to trust in you. And that even further, you gave them a sign of your, the sign of the virgin 
who would bear a son named Emmanuel. Lord, we thank you that that sign is for us as well. We thank you that it is a reminder to us of your sovereignty to deliver us from the greatest foe of all, and that is our sin. Father, thank you that in Jesus Christ, who was born and who, who lived and died on the cross and rose from the grave, thank you that through faith in him, our sins can be forgiven, that we can have a renewed relationship with you, that we can no longer fear the judgment that, that it would come because of our sin, but that we can trust that you will make all things right, that you will save us and deliver us from sin. And thank you, Father, and most furthermore, for the hope that we have in you because of Christ. To know that whatever we face, whatever trials we, we, are, we find ourselves in, before us now, that you are sovereign over it. And that we can continue to trust in you. So thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you for your word. Pray that you would cause us to continue to be people of faith. And may this season, this Christmas season, Thanksgiving season, be a time that we point our others and as we reflect ourselves upon the gracious and wonderful gift of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless.